come now to the preaching of your word, and we ask you to do what only you can do. Um, Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would instruct us, would teach us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill Andrew with your spirit, empower him, that he might serve with the strength that you supply, that he might speak the very utterances of God as you tether him to your word. Um, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would teach us, Lord, reprove us, correct us, train us, make us complete for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Now I know what Moses felt like standing on a mountaintop looking down at all of God's people, declaring to them the word of the Lord. Uh, I bring you greetings from Indian Creek Baptist Church in Mineral Wells, just down the road. Um, We are big fans of Rocky Point Baptist Church. We're big fans of Pastor Jeff Dyke and Pastor Dayland and your elders, and I'm thankful to be here this morning. Uh, We are here to gather, to hear God's word proclaimed, and you already know where we'll be this morning, Psalm 14. Um, Before I call you all fools, which I do plan to do, let me rush to express my gratitude for uh, asking me to come and speak. And um, Psalm 14 is nearly identical to Psalm 53, so that's good news because for two reasons. Number one, um, I will potentially check off two of the Psalms in one day, or number two, if I mess it up, Pastor Jeff has a chance to come back and preach it right uh, in Psalm 53. So are you in Psalm 14 yet? I will try not to take your entire day because Hard Eight Barbecue is already open. Let's read the text together. Uh, We'll pray and then I'll yell at you a bit. Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For your son's sake, help me, Holy Ghost. Amen. 
citizens living near Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 were given two months of warnings and evacuation orders. Earthquakes and volcanic activity signaled the most deadly volcano eruption in American history was on its way. Some of you remember this. Harry Randall Truman, an 83-year-old World War I veteran and shipwreck survivor, and the caretaker of Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, famously ignored the warnings. He told reporters, quote, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up and leave, end quote. On May 18, 1980, Mr. Truman and his lodge were buried underneath 150 feet of mud and debris. Now, I'm sure that Mr. Truman was a valiant warrior, a successful business owner, and probably a very smart man. But he ended his life as a fool. We're going to see in our text three movements. Starting in verse 1, we'll see the fool defined. In verses 2 through 4, we'll see the fool identified. And in verses 5 through 7, we'll see the fool thwarted. So let's look again at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So let's answer this question quickly. Who is the fool? Well, we see right away that the fool is one who ignores realities. Just like Mr. Truman, the fool is one who ignores realities. Now, I've been to seminary, and I have the big fancy books on my shelf, but sometimes I'm most instructed by my own study Bible. There are really good notes in the ESV study Bible. Here's one of them. There are three Hebrew words for fool, and all of them speak of moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. The term here denotes someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom. One who stubbornly rejects wisdom. Another commentator said it this way, This is not a silly person, but one who ignores realities. You know this, that some of the world's smartest people actually are fools. I was impressed by your graduates this morning. That's an impressive group of young people. You have a lot to be excited about and proud of at your church. Graduates, hear me, for the ones of you who are going off to colleges not named Boyce, uh, I'll tell you, you will probably encounter some very smart fools. Do not buy the message that they proclaim to you, that there is no God. Their works will bear them out. Now, we also have the capacity to be fools, don't we? I mean, I can be a fool. In fact, I have been a fool. Sometimes late at night when, I, when I'm trying to go to sleep, I'll think back on all some of the foolish things that I've done. Anybody else have that particular affliction? You think back on the things that embarrass you. Here's just a regular, ordinary, everyday example. Uh, many of us, myself included, like to be fools when we are behind the wheel. We know the warnings. Don't text and drive. You're liable to wind up dead. But your boy sometimes sends a text message. Sometimes I even scroll Facebook. Sometimes I set my fantasy baseball roster. I'm a fool. And so are you. We used to live at the beach. <clears throat> um, people ask us all the time, 
why did we move from the beach to semi-rural Texas? And the answer is God made us do it. Um, on the beach, when there are uh, particularly high waves or big heavy winds or severe undertow or dangerous currents, they'll put out a series of flags. No flag means you're good to go. You can swim, surf, do whatever you want. Yellow flag means you take caution. You probably shouldn't be out, but if you're an expert surfer, for example, okay. You're at your own risk. Red flag is no one go out. You might die. And I have seen some people acting quite foolish on red flag days. Just my exhortation for you for when you go to the beach is that you don't live there. Please don't be foolish. On dangerous days, stay in your hotel or go to the pool or go shopping or play mini golf because every beach community in the United States has 500 mini golf courses. I don't know why. But don't be a fool, right? I think the low-hanging fruit here in verse 1 that we all probably all pops into our mind is, oh, this text is about atheists. And to a degree, that's true, right? There, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Who says there is no God? The atheist does. And we, we believe and we know that the atheist is a fool because he ignores what God's word says. I'll prove it to you. I believe the scriptures have the last word about fools and about atheists also. Go to, well, if you want to, you can go to Romans chapter 1. And I'll read you an example of what God's word says about those who reject God's word. Starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they, know, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There we see in God's word that creation and common grace both loudly proclaim God's existence. Those who suppress this knowledge have no excuse. They're making a choice. They're actively being a fool. They are without excuse because they are just simply stopping up their ears. One preacher that I like to listen to says it this way. There are two tenets of atheism. One, there is no God, and two, I hate him. How true is that? They know there's a God, they're just mad at him. They see things in creation, they just suppress what they see. They're not willing to listen. I love this story about famous preacher D.L. Moody. He was a, a very <clears throat> well-known preacher in Chicagoland. And one morning before he went up to preach, one of his uh, very vocal opponents, and preachers have those sometimes, uh, one of his very vocal opponents handed him a note, and it just was all caps with an exclamation point at the end. It just said, fool. Now, stopping someone on the way to preach is not usually an effective time to get our attention, but you could derail our sermon. But it didn't happen with Pastor Moody. He responded from the pulpit. 
And he said, the most curious thing just happened. I was given a note that just said the word fool. And it was curious because I've heard of people getting letters with no signature, but I've never heard of letters that only have a signature and no letter. And it's true. Atheists suppress the truth about God. They're being fools. But this psalm is not only about atheists. You need to know this. It's actually about all of us. And we'll get into that here in just a second. So we see that the fool is one who ignores realities. But later in verse 1, we see that the fool is one who aggressively pursues his own corrupt desires. Boyce put it this way. He knows there is a God, yet chooses to deny it. What he is actually doing is not saying, I don't believe there is a God. He's saying, I don't want this God to have authority over my life. I know there's a God, but I don't want to submit to him. I want to do my own thing. This is explained in Job chapter 21. I'll read you a couple of verses. And just so you know, I'm trying to handle it rightly. This is Job speaking, not one of his three idiot friends. It says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Oh, they're asking some foolish questions, aren't they? It's okay to respond to me if you want to. It's also okay not to. The fool aggressively pursues his own desires, and he rejects God's authority over his life. In fact, the fool is really typified in an Old Testament character named Nabal, or Nabal. I'm going to go with Nabal, because I don't speak Hebrew. In fact, the word fool there in verse 1 is the same word, Nabal, or Nabal. This fool story is told in 1 Samuel chapter 25. David's crew was out in the wilderness and they were um, for a time protecting this man named Nabal's shepherds. He was a sheep shearer. He was very wealthy. And David and his cohort were protecting Nabal's men. And so David sends some messengers to Nabal and says, we need some help. This is obviously a paraphrase. He says, "We, we need some help. Show my men some hospitality. Give them something to eat. Meet their needs. And I want to read to you what Nabal said in response to the great king David. He said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So what do you think David's response was? He assembles his men and says, put your swords on. We're going to pay Nabal a visit. And they go to visit Nabal. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, interrupts. She, she, um, She gets in the way. She meets David before he gets there. And she pleads Uh, for his mercy. Please don't kill my husband and his men. Don't take everything that we have. And here's what she says to him in 1 Samuel 25, 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. The fool knows there's a God, 
but defiantly rejects him. I would argue this is the most common type of fool that we all see and we all know. Who is the fool? He ignores realities and he aggressively pursues his own corrupt desires and his conduct follows his theology. This is in the second half of verse 1. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. If you are uh, reading your Bible, you will see this theme that the knowledge of God produces a life that pleases God. Or knowledge of God produces morality. Or as I used to teach my students, orthodoxy produces orthopraxy, right? Knowledge produces right living. But the exact opposite of true is true for those who reject God. Rejection of God produces immoral lives. Look at the progression. The fool rejects divine wisdom, and he is morally corrupt, and so he does abominable deeds. And hear me clearly. Apart from divine intervention, this is the human default mode. Foolishness. A rejection of authority. A rejection of God and his word. And until Jesus intervenes, that's you. And that's me. We all were at one time fools, and some of us in this room still are fools, but there's hope for you. We'll get to it in a few minutes. I grew up an MK, <clears throat> uh, missionary kid, and a pastor's kid, so I've heard the gospel, uh, not figuratively, literally my entire life. I'm very blessed for that. And one of the memories that um, still haunts me to this day, it's, it's one of my most embarrassing moments, was when my dad was sharing the gospel with me when I was five years old. And he was telling me about Jesus and about God and what he's done for me and how he can save my sins. And, and, and in little five-year-old angry defiance, I said, well, I have two fists, one for God and one for Jesus. I mean, I'm still embarrassed by that. But it just goes to show you, like, this mode runs deep. Our foolishness is, is hardwired into us. It's ingrained into our very nature. Left alone, there is no end to human depravity. I mean, this is the story of Genesis 1 through 11, or really 3 through 11. Mankind sins, they fall, they, they reject God's rule. And then in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we have our first murder. And two chapters later, Genesis 6, God regrets that he even made man in the first place. And so he sends a flood to wipe out the human race. You know, that cute little story with the animals that you learned in Sunday school where God kills everyone because their wickedness knows no bounds. Five chapters later, we have the Tower of Babel. Literally man climbing a ladder trying to overthrow heaven. Can it get any worse? No, it can't. This is what the fool does. He ignores the reality of God and he pursues his own corrupt desires. And as a result, the fool is a slave to his own wickedness. Who is the fool? He's not just the famous, the famous atheist on the speaking tour. He's not just your crazy cousin who always wants to argue with you on Facebook. Apart from divine intervention, we are all foolish or, or, and corrupt. So who is the fool? 
All of us. That's the bad news. We'll get to that more here in just a second. We've seen the fool defined now. He ignores reality. He pursues his own corruption. Number two, we see the fool identified in verses two through four. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? I've already told you, I'll tell you again, by our own nature, we are all spiritually dead fools. Here in our text, God examines the children of man. That includes all of us. Children of man. In 1908, the Times newspaper uh, issued a prompt. They wanted writers to respond, authors to respond. And the prompt was in the paper, what is wrong with the world? Question mark. And very clever and famous writer named G.K. Chesterton wrote back a very simple response. He wrote back the following. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton says, I am. You are. We are. Uh, A little tip for you as you continue to learn to read your Bible well, and I know that this church is preparing you to do that. Um, If you want to understand what any Old Testament text says, what it means, the best thing to do is to go look for it in the New Testament. If it's in the New Testament, that's a help to you. And this text is quoted here in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, excuse me, verses 10 through, I'll read through um, 12. It is written, no, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. If you skip down to verse 18, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul was making the argument that there is no one who is intrinsically, spiritually good. No one seeks God on their own. Romans 3 and Psalm 14 tell us no one seeks God. You might say, well, hold on a second. Doesn't the Bible tell us that there are people who seek God? Yes, it does. It tells us that Asa and Jehoshaphat both sought the Lord. 2 Chronicles 15, 2 Chronicles 19. You might even answer, doesn't God command us to seek him? And I would answer, yes, it does. In Isaiah 55, 6 and Hebrews eleven six, 6, we are commanded to seek the Lord. So if no one seeks God and we're commanded to seek God, how do we reconcile this difference? And I'll explain to you, we only seek God by his enabling power. We only seek God because God compels us to seek him. Why do I say that? Because there's nothing spiritually good in us apart from divine intervention. I used to work at a church, um, and we had an interim pastor. This was my first vocational ministry position. I um, was very wise at the ripe old age of 21. And uh, this very famous interim pastor was giving a gospel message to the VBS kids on the last night of VBS. And I I don't think I'll ever forget it. He, He 
brought up a dry erase board. And he drew a big heart in the middle of the board. And he went on to explain, kids, when you're born, this is what your heart looks like. And every time you sin, he picked up a black marker and colored it in a little bit. And I was shocked because what he was teaching was a classic heresy known as semi-Pelagianism, which is to say, you were born good. It's only when you sin that you become bad. We all have the capacity to be good, just don't mess it up. But the Bible tells us something different. You are born sinful. You do not have the capacity to be good on your own. You need someone to give you a new heart. We as a people, we like to deny the doctrine of total depravity, but it's true. Apart from God, we are depraved. We are radically corrupt. We can, we're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 says. Without God's help, we cannot seek him. I'll give you a few texts here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pop quiz, good news or bad news? Thank you, Jeff. Bad news. Here comes good news, verse 4. But God. Listen, you were spiritually dead until verse 4 happened. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hey, that's bad news, good news. We are dead until he makes us alive. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I remember as a kid, I was, um, let's say, my total depravity was on clear and obvious display. I was not a very good child. <clears throat> and my mother, who meant well and loves the Lord and knows the Bible, she would often confront me with tears in her eyes and say, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Which I think was her way of saying, I don't believe you're saved. And I was just marked by anxiety over that verse for years. I've told her this. Until in college, I read the next verse, which says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which is to say, I don't even want to work for God's good pleasure unless he works that in me. He gives me the will and the work. Or simply 1 John 4.19, we love because he loved us first. Acts 13.48, they're preaching to the Gentiles. The Gentiles believed, and here's what the Bible says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or Acts 11.18, or 2 Timothy 2.25, where the Bible is clear that God grants repentance. What I'm trying to say is, without God's help, we cannot seek him. We need him to make us Go from fools to wise. We need him to give us a new heart, a clean heart. Even good people aren't good. You hear this all the time, right? Oh, he's a good person. Well, I think what you mean to say is, I like him. He does some good things. He's not like an outright 
wicked, like it's, he's not obviously a wicked person, but even good people aren't good because there's no hope of good enough without God's help. I went <clears throat> on a mission trip to New York, a couple of them, and here's what I found over and over. We were sharing the gospel on subways and going door to door, and here's what I found repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I'd ask, like, what's your hope? What do you believe? And they, over and over and over, I believe that I've done more good things than bad things. So I'll get in. And every chance I had the opportunity to say, brother, I've got bad news for you. Because you've done one bad thing, you're not getting in. Not without a righteousness outside of yourself. Unless God intervenes, we are spiritually dead fools. Every single human in history, minus one, is guilty. Now, some are more openly and, ab- and aggressively wicked, we know this, but all are guilty before a thrice holy God. The evildoers here in this psalm intentionally oppress the poor and revile God's name. That's pretty outwardly bad. That's pretty wicked. We've already heard about Nabal. We're not all the same as Nabal, but we are all hostile to God unless God grants us repentance. So from an eternal perspective, I'm just as guilty as Nabal. I'm just as guilty as the wickedest person that you can think of. I'm just as guilty as Nathan Bedford Forrest or Adolf Hitler. I'm guilty apart from God's help. One poet was sharing the gospel one time, and this is a lyric from his spoken word poem about Adam and Eve, and it said, That sin seed spread through our soul's genome, and by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny. Scripture is clear. The verdict is in. There's no one who's good. I'm not good. You're not good. Side note, all you need is to have a child to know. Not good starts real early. We're all guilty. Apart from God, we are all fools with no understanding. And we see here in verse 4, the height of that folly. It's refusing to call upon God. Do you see how incredulous the author is here? Have they no knowledge? They don't call upon the Lord? That's the height of folly, to refuse to call upon God. Let me urge you, let me stop right here. If you are a fool, you're in good company. You're welcome here. If you are a fool, if you've been living in contradistinction to God's word, if you've been living aggressively in pursuit of your own corrupt desires and not willing to hear God or submit to him, let me urge you right now, the answer is here in our text, call upon the Lord. You must find your righteousness outside yourself because it isn't within yourself. Find your righteousness in the only sinless man ever to walk the earth, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was good enough. And rather than hoard all that for himself, he offers his good enough to you so that you can stand before a thrice holy God and live. What good news? All we have to do is accept and believe. Put our trust in him. Say, God, I'm tired of being a fool. I want to be made right before you. One of my favorite paragraphs in all the Bible is Romans 3, 23 through 26. 
Bad news, good news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the bad news. We're all included. But the text continues, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know that you feel like hooping and hollering when you, when you hear that text, so I'm just going to count it to your credit, right? He is the just, that means he's the good enough, and he's the justifier, that, makes he, that means he makes you good enough. This hope only comes from outside of yourself. Our only hope is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We must have Jesus' righteousness or we remain spiritually dead. This faith is a gift from God, so believe it and receive it. Bank on it. Because Romans 10, 13 is also true. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My theology is actually quite simple. The unrighteous or the eternal fools, they will never call on him. And those who God has set aside as righteous will. All who were appointed to eternal life, believed. So the promise here is clear. Call upon the Lord and be saved. Those who call upon the Lord will be saved. They will find refuge from their own foolishness and from the oppression of wicked fools. And they find it in the Lord. That brings us to point number three. We've seen the fool defined. We've seen the fool identified. Bad news, it's all of us. And here we see the fool thwarted. There they are in great terror, verse 5 says, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Friends, beloved, God has chosen a side. It's his own. He is with those who seek him, of course, after he grants them repentance, and he is against those who refuse to call upon the Lord. So let me offer you a second application, you fools. <laughs> Fear the Lord. If you haven't trusted him, trust him. Fear the Lord. Why? Because he's not on your side. You don't want God against you. That's a fight you're going to lose. My son, he's oh, one of my favorite people in the whole world. He's my favorite little boy by far. And um, he punches me sometimes. And I don't particularly like it. You know, he, he, he thinks that he can take his daddy. And I'm here to tell you, he's wrong. If you put us in a cage match and you lock the door, I would destroy him. Why? Because I'm stronger, I'm bigger, probably not faster, but I am older and wiser and he has no hope against me. And to an infinitely greater degree, let me tell you, if you continue to wage war against the God who created the universe, you will lose every time. It won't take long. 
and it won't be hard for God. You will lose. So the application for you is fear the Lord. Lay down your arms and run to him. Just like Abigail ran to David and begged for his mercy, you do the same. Don't be Nabal, be Abigail. Run to the king and beg for his mercy. I have to hurry. Verse 6 tells us that the wicked will be thwarted. What are the wicked doing? They are oppressing God's people. Verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. See, the wicked, they think that they have an easy target. They are opposing God's people and even opposing God himself. But let me tell you, that won't last. It is the way of this wicked and broken world for the unrighteous to oppress the righteous. That's just how it is on this side of heaven. I Get used to it. But the good news is it's not going to last long. Our Savior will come and he will vanquish his enemies. He will avenge our oppressors. He will intervene on our behalf. It reminds me of the cinematic masterpiece and the, in my opinion, the greatest sequel movie ever made. Yes, I'm speaking of Mighty Ducks D2. Hang with me. God's people, the Mighty Ducks, are skating through the city of Minneapolis. I don't know where their parents were, but they just had free reign over this big city. And they're rollerblading through the park, and their arch nemesis, the Hawks, they wear black. I mean, they're the bad guys. It's obvious. They rig up this plan to, they pull out some string, and they're going to trip all of the Mighty Ducks. They're going to destroy them. And they're like sitting back and laughing about it. They're like, ha ha, we're gonna, they're going to hurt. One order of shredded duck coming up is what one person says. And then you hear a voice in the background that says, yeah, they'll never know what hit them. And they're like, yeah, who said that? And they turn around and they see Fulton Reed. If you haven't seen the movie, like this afternoon, go watch it. But Fulton Reed is the enforcer who plays for the ducks. Oh man, they think that they are going to get the last laugh against the Mighty Ducks, but Fulton Reed intervenes, and those bad guys, the Hawks, they wound up with very few clothes on tied to a tree. And let me tell you, if you enter a fight with clothes on and you leave the fight with clothes off, you've lost. Fulton Reed intervenes on behalf of the Mighty Ducks. It's a similar principle for me and probably every other God-fearing uh, you know what I'm about to say, Texan man. If you come for my family in the middle of the night, you will have to deal with who? Me. I think it's the height of foolishness to uh, break and enter into a Texan house. It's just foolish. You'll have to deal with the owner of the house. The wicked, they try to oppress God's people, and, and for a time, that's just how it is, but their intervention is coming. Their Savior is on his way. And even still, things are not as they seem. God's kingdom is the exact opposite of the world. The world, the ones who the world view as wise, they're actually the fools. And the ones who the world views as fools are actually wise. You can read all about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, I implore you, college students, 
Do not buy the folly of the world that says there is no God. The wicked will one day be thwarted because the Lord is the refuge for his people. We end here just like so many psalms on the last verse with a triumphant hope. That hope is salvation comes from Zion. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Quickly, Zion symbolizes the hope of God's saving presence among his people. It can refer to several things throughout the Bible. Most often refers to the Temple Mount or the city of Jerusalem. But the, the general consensus of Scripture is in Zion is where the people of Israel will find refuge and rest and hope in the presence of their Redeemer. It's synonymous in the prophets with the eschatological hope of salvation. So here's the good news. For those of us living on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, salvation has come from Zion in the man, Jesus Christ. And as we wait, even though we will face oppression and we will be mocked and ridiculed by the wicked, I have good news for you. Not only has salvation already come, final salvation is on its way. And where will we find it? In Zion. In Christ, we have our refuge and our hope. There's a little book in the Minor Prophets called Obadiah. And Obadiah is a message of judgment against God's enemies, in particular, the Edomites. The Edomites are a wicked people who are always oppressing God's people, Israel. They sold them off, some of them, into exile. They laughed at them as they were taken captive in slavery. And God has almost nothing good to say to the people of Edom in the, in the book of Obadiah, except there's one verse. I really love this verse. It's Obadiah verse 17. Here's what it says. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. Did you catch that? Even in the middle of of God pronouncing judgment on his people's fiercest enemies, he tells them, but you can find escape, <clears throat> refuge, hope at Zion. We have the same hope. In Christ, we hope for final salvation when he writes all the wrong things. So here's some application again for the fools in the room. Lay down your weapons and find refuge in Zion. Now, I've already given the fools three applications. And, and probably, I would assume, I, I hope anyway, that most of us in this room already belong to Jesus. We, we don't hear this text so much as a warning, but as, a, um, as an affirmation of what Jesus has already done for us. So here's some application for you righteous, and I hope that that's, most, if not all of us in this room, the application for you righteous is three R's. This is something we talk about a lot at Indian Creek Baptist Church, and I want to share it with you. Remember, rejoice, and repeat. Can you say that with me? Remember, rejoice, and repeat. Firstly, we remember. What do we remember, Andrew? We remember that you were a fool too. 
I was once a fool too. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We used to be fools too. So let's remember what God has done on our behalf. How he washed us. He cleansed us. He brought us into his family. He gave us an eternal hope and a future. Remember, saints, what Jesus has done for you. We also rejoice. That's the application right here in the text. It ends with this. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. We rejoice that salvation has come in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice as we wait for final salvation to come in Jesus Christ. We remember what he did for us. We rejoice in what he did for us. And we repeat it to other people. Invite others to renounce their foolishness and call on Christ. Listen, friends, it's different to say, you're a fool, than it is to say, I used to be a fool, and now I'm not. And let me help you get there. You hear how that's different? We remember what Jesus did, we rejoice in what he did, and we tell other people, we, we repeat what Jesus did, invite others to renounce their foolishness and call on Christ. So if you don't yet belong to Jesus as part of his family. Let this psalm compel you to repent from your sinful disobedience and your willful foolishness. Don't be a fool any longer. Turn to the one who is all wise, Jesus Christ. And if you do belong to Christ, let this psalm compel you to worship the living God who offers you refuge from your enemies as well as from your own sinful heart. Worship the God who has taken your sin and your shame and has given you the righteousness of his perfect and eternal son who is coming one day soon to avenge our enemies. Worship the eternal son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess together that the problem of the world it's us. We were foolish. We were running hard away from you. We were opposing you. We were even oppressing other people. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace. So help us, Lord, to remember what you've done for us to rejoice in what you've done for us, to repeat to others what you've done for us. And if there's anyone in this room or watching online who has not yet repented of their sins, I ask that you would grip their heart, show them that they've been a fool, but they don't have to be a fool any longer. They can find refuge in Zion under the mighty hand of God. Teach us these truths, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.
Amen. Uh, would you all stand?